I think that's the first time I've ever come to do a sermon from that side of the stage. That's exciting. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to keep on uh, doing new things and remember uh, to let you know that Children's Church is happening. So any uh, children ages 2 to 6 are welcome to head downstairs for that, for the remainder of the service. Um, let's open in prayer. God, uh, we've been singing these songs that invite you here, that recognize your presence with us. You've been doing this series that recognizes the ways in which you have come down to meet us, the ways in which you are making this world your home, the ways in which you are active in our lives. And so as I preach, I pray that you would continue to be active, that you would be working in our hearts, that you would be drawing us close to you, um, that you would be reminding us uh, of your truth through this song of Mary that we're looking at today, uh, through the words that I speak, uh, that you could be active and working in that God, that you would be the one that would be heard, that you would be the one that would be remembered. In your name, amen. So today we are continuing our Advent series. Uh, we've called it Coming Home. And, and all the previous sermons, I want to mention again, are available on our website or podcast. So if you have missed any of the previous ones, I encourage you to check them out. They are available there. Uh, Darren started by looking at Isaiah's call, by looking at Israel's call, the call to come down home, calling God home, recognizing um, our need or desire for God to come and make things right uh, in a broken world. And Mike continued by asking the question, where is our home, really? What does home mean? And he came to the conclusion that home is way bigger uh, than a residence or a place or a location, uh, that in fact home uh, is where we are together with God. Home is where we meet God. And anywhere that we are with God is our home. And Darren last week looked at the idea of joy being a part of our true home. The concept of joy being something that characterizes our home with God. And, and he looked through scripture uh, to find pieces of the Christmas story that speak about this joy. And he actually touched a little bit already on the piece of scripture that we're going to be uh, digging into Today, So I'm going to start off by reading uh, that scripture for this morning, and we're going to be reading from Luke 1. I encourage you to open your Bibles or take out your phones. We're going to be going back to this piece of scripture often throughout the message, so kind of keep your thumb there. We're going to be reading mostly from Luke 1, verses 46 to 55. But what I'm going to do first now is give a little bit of context to it, so I'm going to start a bit earlier. This first time I'm going to start in verse 39, and in, in Luke's narrative here, uh, in the way that he has set this Christmas story up, Mary has literally just finished her conversation uh, with the angel, where the angel comes and tells her that she's going to be bearing the Son of God. And, uh, and, and the end of verse 50, or th uh, 38, rather, is literally, then the angel left her. And I'm going to read uh, from there, Luke 1, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her, and will be accomplished. And here's Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, 
For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So this is what we are digging into today. And, and I want to make a bit of a disclaimer that this sermon makes me a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Um, not because of the spiritual truths that we are going into today, but mostly because it deals almost exclusively with the experience of pregnant women. And I have been conditioned from a very young age to never under any circumstance comment on, take note of, make assumptions about, reference, or ask questions of any woman who could possibly be pregnant. As a man, I should never presume to have even the slightest idea of what it's like to be pregnant, have cravings, deal with hormones, or give birth. And so I guess my apologies to my mom and Aaron and anybody else here today whose experiences I miss represent as I go into this, but let's dive into this together, hopefully with grace. I think sometimes uh, with Bible stories that we read often or hear about often, especially these ones, these core stories that we have growing up from a very young age, these keystone stories in Scripture, it might seem like those are the stories that we should know best, that we should have the best understanding of, but sometimes I think we end up with the worst understanding of those stories because we become so over-familiar with them, and we begin to present them in these neat, clean, kind of tidy boxes. They become kind of uh, Disney-fied, where everything is clean and sanitary and nice and obvious, and it wraps up perfectly, and the good guys were always calm and confident, and the bad guys were always obvious and evil, and it just makes perfect sense. The reality is, when we over-familiarize ourselves with something, we can start to lose the humanity of it. We can start to lose uh, the grittiness of it, and, and in fact, we can start to miss out on some of the important truth of it. Uh, and I've been thinking about this a lot because uh, this is something that's coming up more and more as Sebastian, uh, our oldest, our three-year-old, is, is hitting this why phase in his life. And, and we read him a Bible story uh, every night from his children's Bible, and I'm often not thinking a lot about what is actually being read. But just last week, I was working on something, and Aaron was getting Sebastian ready for bed. And she called me to come over and help with a question. Sebastian had noticed that David was not being very nice in his story. In fact, he was hitting Goliath very hard. <laughs> and that is not a nice thing to do. We are never supposed to hit. And so I stumbled through trying to explain this thing, that honestly, I don't totally understand myself. And I basically told Sebastian, you know, we are never supposed to hit people. But even when we make mistakes or act in a way that makes God sad, he can use those things to accomplish something really, really good. But that sort of question reminded me that a lot of these stories are, are a lot messier than, than the Sunday school versions of them when we start to make a lot of crazy assumptions about these things. And Mary is a, is a really great example of this. If you look at pictures of Mary, and there are thousands of them, she is typically presented with this sort of calm, 
contemplative demeanor, sort of staring softly up to heaven or down at her belly. Mary as accepting and submissive and quiet and passive. Uh, she's almost just sort of this object that's carrying Jesus. Uh, we don't really think of her as an individual with thoughts or feelings outside of just sort of acceptance. But that's not the way that the actual story goes at all. Mary is a young girl engaged to be married, living in a society where she has basically no rights or personhood on her own. She's essentially owned by her father until she is owned by her husband. And so putting sort of the ugly social politics of that aside, uh, she's in the middle of maybe the most precarious time in her life, in this transition from one to the other. And, and on her societal value, on that level, it's, it's kind of like these movies where people are climbing mountains and there's a spot where there's some big ravine and they put a ladder over or run a rope and there's this long, horrible sequence where they pass slowly over this thousand-foot drop. And she's in this gap between her family and her new husband. And if anything goes wrong in this period, if anything upsets it, if anything goes off the rails, it's going to be especially bad for her. At best, it's going to bring huge shame onto her family or her husband, which is a gigantic deal in that culture. And at worst, she could be dragged out into the street and stoned. We see that happening to adulterous women in the Bible. And if she's accused of that, that's a possibility. And now, she's pregnant. And she knows that she's carrying the Son of God. But who's going to believe that story? What are the chances that she can go to Joseph and casually drop that into conversation? And he'll accept it. So, she goes to her cousin for support. The way the story happens in Luke, it seems like she basically gets the news from the angel and immediately leaves to go see Elizabeth. And I assume it's looking for some support, support and advice and maybe a place to hide out while she figures some things out. This is not a casual visit. This is about life and death for Mary. And as she travels, I have to imagine her mind reeling, asking questions, trying to process what happened. It must have felt surreal. Was it a dream? What if it was? What if she was making it up? Could she even believe it? And as she arrives at Elizabeth's home, she greets her. And the passage says that Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, and the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, and the word there is getting at a voice so loud that you think they might have been using a megaphone. Picture, I wish I had a recording of this, but I don't. I was, I was driving down the road, this must be a couple of years ago, listening to CHVN, and they were doing some sort of a call-in prize, and they were talking with the winners on the radio, and all of a sudden I had to turn down the volume a little bit, because Marilyn Kernelson won something. <laughs> I can't even remember what it was, a piece of jewelry or a gift certificate. I don't think it was a big prize, but the overall radio volume went up about 300% with her excitement. The radio hosts weren't really sure what to do with it, it was like a happy bomb had just gone off uh, in the studio. And anyways, when I think about Elizabeth's greeting here, I think about a Marilyn Kernelson greeting. Mary probably intended to come in and greet Elizabeth and say, hey, can we go somewhere private to talk? I need to tell you something. It's really important. You have to believe me, but you have to be quiet about it. But before she could even get a word out, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary 
is probably a little shocked by this, but she is emboldened by it, and she is lifted by it, and she is encouraged by it, and all these doubts and fears she may have had are pushed aside, and she sings. And there is a strong history of women singing in the Bible. It might be the clearest place in Scripture where we see sort of a strong leader heart of women portrayed in these songs. Miriam singing a song of victory to God with a tambourine, after their victory over the Egyptians. Uh, Deborah proclaiming victory for God over her enemies and strength for those who follow him. Women dancing and singing in the streets when David returns the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Hannah singing a song that calls for social justice and reform, that calls for God to come down home and to restore it to the way that it should be. And Mary is right in line here with these strong women. This is not a Mary who is timid or scared or submissive or passive. This is Mary the courageous. This is Mary the prophet. This is Mary the revolutionary. Just listen to the song again and imagine it being sung by a teenage girl at risk of death because what is happening to her, because of what God has asked her to do. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Calling for rulers to be brought down and rich to be sent away empty, recognizing the mighty hand of God and rejoicing in God in spite or maybe in fact because of this incredible difficult journey that she has ahead of her. How many of our Christmas stories or carols call for the toppling of governments, the emptying of the rich, the scattering of the proud? Mary's Christmas song was less like a lullaby and more like a declaration of war against this world's kingdom. And we are wanting to look today through the lens of this scripture at what happens when God makes this world his home. And I think that this song gives us some really important insight into that uh, for two reasons. First is that this song speaks about what's going to change when God comes down to earth. It lays out a roadmap for what God is going to do, how he is going to act, and what he is going to make right in the world. So we need to look at that. And second, more than just taking something from the song, we need to pay attention to the singer herself. Right now in this story, God has made Mary his home. God is in Mary. Jesus Christ, fully God, is within her as his home. And this song is what pours out of her. This is what she calls for. And so I think we need to look pretty closely at how Mary is responding and what her attitude is and what her spiritual posture is and allow that to serve as a blueprint or at least to inform our own responses to God coming down and making this world our home. So these are the two things that we're going to address today in the time that we have left. First, when God comes to earth, what changes? When you take over occupancy of a new home, there are almost always some changes that you want to make. Some more extreme than others. I'm betting 
that at least some of you over the holidays will somehow end up in front of the TV watching those long marathon runs of Fixer Upper on HGTV where Chip and Joanna Games help new homeowners complete dramatic renovations of their houses. Sometimes you can barely even tell the new house was the old one. But whether it's as simple as a coat of paint or some new curtains, or as dramatic as taking an older house and turning it into some open concept, mid-century, modern mini-mansion, when we take ownership of a new home, it's pretty standard that we would be interested in making some changes. And as God comes down into a broken world that's showing some significant signs of wear and tear, there's no question that he's stepping into a fixer-upper. He's going to want to make some changes. He's going to want to right some things that have been wrong for a very long time. So the important question we should be asking ourselves when reading a song like Mary's is what does this say about what God wants to accomplish on earth? And I'm going to focus in on the second half of the song here, verses 50 to 55, where Mary talks about what God has done, what God will do when he makes this world his home. It says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought rulers down from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So as we look at this, we start to see uh, a strong pattern here in these verses, and I've made a chart that sort of begins to break this section down a little bit so we can maybe take a better look at it or a more clear look at it. And there's this parallel poetry that we see, this comparing of what's going to happen to the rich and the wealthy and the proud and what's going to happen to the poor and the lowly, the servant. And what God appears to be gearing up to do is to shatter our earthly concept of kingdoms, of social hierarchy, and structure, to flip everything upside down. And when I read this, when I look at this broken down, my mind immediately jumps to the Beatitudes that we covered this summer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst. Mary is talking about this upside down kingdom that we have talked so much about over the last few months. And honestly, this song makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And it should make you uncomfortable too. Because if you look at our world, if you gather us all together, where do we end up on the power scales? Where do we end up in terms of who in our world are rulers? Who in our world are proud? Who in our world are rich? And especially at Christmas time, when our thoughts sometimes shift so heavily to the material, to what we are buying or eating, or where we are going on vacation... These things aren't bad, but we should always have Mary's song in the back of our minds. We should always feel this tension going, this world is not my home. This kingdom is not my kingdom. This stuff is not my stuff. That should be there in your heart. Not that you can't enjoy things. Not that you can't go on vacations. Just don't let them distract you from what's truly important in life. From the way that Mary reminds us things are truly set up. Uh, and maybe another reason why I find this song a little bit difficult uh, to stomach, this series of verses, is because at face value, they don't click into what I understand about God. A God who so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. How can we say God loves the whole world if he's bringing down rulers and if he's sending the rich away empty? 
and if he's scattering the proud. How does that reflect the mercy that God talks about at the beginning and end of this stanza? Well, let me ask you this. When you scatter the proud, what do they become? When you remove their source of pride, when you take away their high horse, they become humble. And what does God do to the humble? He lifts them up. When you send someone away empty, even a rich person, what do they become? They become hungry. And what does God promise to do for the hungry? He will fill them. And when God brings down a ruler, they become the mirror image of a ruler. And what is the mirror image of a ruler? It's a servant. And what does God do to servants? He helps them. And so sort of hidden underneath this song is redemption and restoration for all. Available for the whole world, just like John talks about. God is working a plan that gives all access to salvation. The rich, the proud, and the rulers just might have a bit of a longer path. They, we, simply have to release our grasp on pride, on possessions, and on power to begin that journey up that ladder that we talked about over summer towards God's kingdom. So the second question here is how do we respond? So to answer this question, I want to hop back to the first part of the prayer, uh, verses 46 to 49. It says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary is in a really bad situation right now. She likely hasn't spoken to Joseph yet about this, let alone her own family. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her. She doesn't know what the next chapter is going to bring. But she can probably guess it's not going to be the simple, stable life she might have been dreaming of when her and Joseph were engaged. Everything has been thrown into upheaval and chaos. And she speaks out, as Darren mentioned last week, with an unshakable, deep joy. My soul rejoices in the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I, th I thought of a few different ways that I could address uh, this question of how we should respond. This look at Mary as someone who had been thrown into chaos uh, and responded with strength and hope and joy. Uh, but as I processed, my mind kept being drawn back over and over again to the life and the testimony of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer, who incidentally preached a great sermon on this uh, song that Mary sings, is considered to be one of the most important theological minds of the 21st century. He's pictured here along with his fiancée, uh, Maria. Born in Germany in 1906, he went to school to become an ordained minister in Berlin, and within a year of his ordination, the Nazi party began to take hold of the church, uh, forcing nationwide elections, rigging many of them, placing pro-Nazi ministers and officials into important positions in the German churches. And he remained a staunch opponent of the Nazis and spent some time in London and the U.S. to avoid capture as well as to study. But in 1939, he returned to Germany on the last scheduled steamer across the Atlantic. And he continued to work with the German resistance movement as a spy 
And in this process, he gets engaged to Maria, a fellow Christian resistor. And in January of 1943, he's engaged. And a few months later, he is arrested and spends several years in prison, is eventually moved to a concentration camp and killed. It's a fascinating life. There are many good biographies about him. And he wrote many letters from jail that have survived. Uh, sympathetic guards were willing to smuggle them out for him. And the letter that I kept coming back to is one he wrote his fiancée that is titled, Waiting is an Art. And, and what I love about this letter is how he recognizes, how he doesn't shy away from uh, the bleakness, uh, the horribleness, the difficulty of his situation. But in the midst of that, all the more powerful because of where he's writing from, he recognizes that same joy that lit up Mary's eyes as she sang. That same awareness that God is working within and through the darkness to bring forth light. The sort of light that we celebrate at Christmas. The sort of light that the Apostle John writes about when he says, as Darren uh, quoted on Friday, that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so this is what Bonhoeffer writes. This is a section from that letter. Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria, even if this letter is the only token of my love this Christmas tide, we shall both experience a few dark hours. Why would we disguise that from each other? We shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why, over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity, we should be subjected to such bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. And then just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand us, withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault. That is all. God is in the manger. Wealth in poverty. Light in darkness. Help in abandonment. No evil can befall us, whatever men may do to us. They cannot but serve the God who has secretly revealed his love and rules the world and our lives. So this world is broken and hurting. And many of us, uh, myself included, are hurting in different ways this Christmas. Many of you will remember that last Christmas for me was thrown into chaos when my brother passed away. And that hurt is real, and the brokenness is real, and the messiness is real. But hallelujah, God has made this world his home. And if we have confessed with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has risen from the dead, then like Mary, we have God himself living inside of us. And so because God has come down here to earth, because God has made and is actively making this world, his home, in us and through us, with Mary and with Dietrich, we can say, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Amen? Amen.